Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. And I pray that that's your testimony this morning. And if not, there's room at the cross where that can be your testimony this morning. Well, welcome and good morning, ARC. You all may be seated. And welcome to our guest. So today you fall in and you come in and you're hearing our uh, 5M series. And these are our five objectives here at Anacostia River Church. And our five objectives is what help us accomplish our mission here in the Anacostia area. And our mission is to glorify God by making disciples from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. And the way we accomplish that is through our five objectives called our five M's. And this series we do every year, but we're taking a different look this year. We're looking at how Jesus would view our five M's, how he would uh, teach us how to share the message of the gospel to the block, showing mercy to our neighbor, shepherding one another to maturity and seeking to multiply leaders. And lastly, how Jesus would send out missionaries from among us. So today we're in part two of five, showing mercy to our neighbors. So we're going to be going uh, to Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, turn near to Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. And this morning we will be looking at the good Samaritan. And as we look at this parable that Jesus told, there are some important things to consider with this particular M on mercy. Number one, we are not saved by our works. And number two, but we are saved for good works, good works of showing mercy to our neighbors. And this is what we'll see in this text today. And then we'll answer the big question, not who, but how can I be a good neighbor? How can I show mercy to our neighbor? Amen. And just what I said, the most important word, and that is this three-letter word, but, B-U-T. It's a slight contrast that makes a world of difference, family. The difference in how you view salvation and how you serve. And this was the lesson for the lawyer who came to test the teacher. And he learned that day that there is a difference between having the right answers and having right understanding. And before we look sideways at the lawyer, let us humble ourselves and let us pray for understanding today. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word, for the various modes of worship and singing. Truly, your grace is amazing. And Lord, we pray now that in all our getting, that you would allow us to get understanding. Allow us to have a discerning heart of wisdom and transform us by the renewing of our mind as we consider showing mercy to our neighbors not as those who work for salvation, but as those who serve because we are saved and we have experienced this grace, this love, this mercy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So growing up in the Boogie Down Bronx, New York, I wondered why my block never looked like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, do you all remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? See a few head shakes. That's good. That's good. So if you remember, right, I mean, every morning I couldn't really relate to his neighborhood, but I was right in front of my TV just to see Mr. Rogers. 
I mean, he was real smooth with it, right? He would throw off the blazer, throw in the cardigans. He would throw the sneaker and change the shoes and do all of this. And I was like, man, I would love to be Mr. Rogers' neighbor. And just recently, I did a YouTube search just to kind of see the um, one of the old episodes and showed it to my kids. They thought it was corny, but I was loving it all over again, right? But this time I zoomed in on the lyrics that he sang. And I just want to share those lyrics with you. He says, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please, won't you please be my neighbor? So first of all, I was like, he really wants me to be his neighbor and I'd love to be his neighbor, right? So I thought, man, is Mr. Rogers a Christian? So I did a little more research, looked at the Christian Post and I found out they had an article about him. And it said, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was profoundly scriptural. It rested on one of the most vital of biblical passages where Jesus lays out the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. For Fred Rogers, children was the most important neighbor in the rich gospel sense of the word and the focus of his pastoral care. They were human beings made in the image of God. And when you think about who qualifies for a neighbor in your own mind, do you think of children like Fred Rogers? Do you think of the literal neighbor who lives next door or across the street? What comes to mind when you think about neighbor? And as Christians, we should especially see that the only qualification in the broad biblical sense to be a neighbor is to be a fellow image bearer. Nothing more, nothing less. The who is clear when we see that in scripture, but it's the how that sometimes jams us up through honest, right? So could I be, would I be his neighbor? Yes. The question is, can I, can you say the same thing? Can you be a neighbor in the biblical sense? So as we look at the text of the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke allows us to kind of eavesdrop on this conversation between Jesus and this lawyer. And the lawyer, not in the sense that we would think lawyer in today's term, but this was a expert in the law of God. He was an expert in learning the word. And we'll see this drama unfold in this conversation with four questions and three dilemmas. And Jesus gives us the answer in one solution. And we'll see how that solution has many implications for us here in Anacostia as we seek to make disciples from the four corners of the block. So four questions, three dilemmas, one solution, several applications as we show mercy to our neighbors. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37 reads as follows. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and live. But in desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So notice in verse 25, this is the first question. He says, and behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So there's two things right off the bat here in verse 25. One that you should never do, test the teacher, and one we could never do, inherit eternal life on our own merit. You should never put Jesus to the test. Not that you shouldn't have questions because we all have questions and God is big enough to handle our questions, but what are your motives behind that? How is your heart posture before a holy God? Not that this lawyer was not smart, not that this lawyer wasn't versed in the word. It's not even because this was a bad question. In fact, it was the most important question that any and everyone could ever ask. The problem was not his mind, but his heart. It was full of self-righteousness and pride. Two sneaky little things that we all, each of us, need to be on the lookout for. You see, self-righteousness says I can do enough good works in order to earn God's favor and spend eternity in his holy presence. That they somehow, someway have earned the right to behold the beauty and majesty and glory of the almighty God. The very thing that the seraphim angels in heaven would not dare do. And his first cousin pride convinces the person that they actually can do this. This is this is tricky. Pride is tricky. And there was another one who was full of pride and wanted to test Jesus. You remember, it was Satan. This is straight out of the devil's playbook. Early in the same book in Luke chapter four, Jesus was tempted in the desert by Satan. And Jesus had to rebuke and remind the devil that you shall not test the Lord your God. So you can see how far this teacher of Israel had fallen. They indeed were blind guides to the point that he was using the enemy tactics on Jesus the very one that the law and the prophets that they had been spending their entire lives studying pointed to. And guess what? They missed him. Lord, may we not miss Jesus in our attempts to be students of the word. Satan is subtle. Satan is crafty. Satan's a liar. And he tempts people to put God to the test as if we could somehow put God himself on trial. But like any good teacher, in verse 26, Jesus answers his question with his own question. Here in the second question in the conversation, he says in verse 26, what is written in the law and how do you read? In other words, he wants him to recall the scriptures he had been studying and ask him to interpret it because wrong interpretation leads to wrong application. So seeing the scripture rightly helps him to recalibrate and show this lawyer that his whole premise, his whole foundation was wrong, that in some way he can earn salvation. 
So he points them back to the scripture because that's where the truth is. That's where the power lies. And that is what able, is able to transform and renew and change the heart and the mind. So I'm curious, how often do we point back to scripture? Especially if we believe it to be profitable in teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. How often do we point back to the scripture? Especially with ourselves. When we're believing a lie, do we look to the book? Whether with our brothers and sisters, when they're believing a lie, do we point them to the scriptures? Or even in our evangelism, when our neighbors are believing a lie, do we open the book and point people to the Bible, the word of God, which is perfect for reviving the soul? See, three things take place when we do that. Number one, people see that what we're thinking or saying is not of our own opinion but it's from God himself. Number two, the disagreements that they may have is not with you, but it's with God himself. And number three, you let the word do the work and see how the Holy Spirit, God himself, might guide that conversation. And this is not in some obnoxious way. No, not at all. But in the way that Jesus did it with the lawyer, the way that Philip did it with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight. He asked them if he understood what he was reading and beginning in Isaiah 53, his point of reading and understanding, he opened up the gospel to him. The best way to conquer a lie is with the truth, the truth of God's word rightly understood. And if Jesus believed in the authority and sufficiency of scriptures, then we should believe in the authority and sufficiency of scriptures. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He flips the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life, back on the lawyer and points him to God's word. And in the word is where the lawyer is faced with his first dilemma. In verse 27 and 28, he, the lawyer, answered Jesus and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So in response to Jesus' question, he quotes from two Old Testament passages. And in these passages, they summarize the whole of the law in these two great commandments. The first one is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which is known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And the second one is found in Leviticus 19, and it says, and it you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as an expert in the law, this was a softball question. So he thought, but there are things that are easier said than done. So kids, just think about the most difficult thing that you ever had to do, right? Math, love your siblings, your brother, your sister, if they're being mean to you. Hula hoop, double dutch, you know that thing when you rub your stomach and pat your head? I mean, that's hard work, right? Now imagine doing that perfectly all day, every day for the rest of your life. And if you messed up once, your eternity was at stake. Do you see the impossibility of this for us to be perfect on our own? So although Jesus tells him he has the right answer, he gets at the heart of the dilemma with this next statement. He says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will have eternal life meaning perfect obedience to God's law leads to eternal life. Do you see why this is a big dilemma? 
Jesus says, if you keep James in his book says, if you keep all the law and break it at just one point, you're guilty of breaking them all. If you keep all the law and break it at one point, you are guilty of breaking them all. Yeah, the weight of that is what was meant to be felt. This lawyer was meant to feel that kind of weightiness that cries out, I need a righteousness that's not of my own. I need a savior. But instead, the text says he tries to justify himself, to find a way to be right in his own sight. He knew it was impossible to love God perfectly, but perhaps his good deeds can outweigh his bad deeds when it comes to his neighbor. But even that is impossible, family. And one of the themes of Luke is this idea of the impossibility of self-justification. In another passage in Luke 18, 9, Jesus tells a story about a tax collector and a Pharisee. He said these two men went to the temple to pray. Jesus says that the Pharisee even prays in a self-righteous way. He thanked God for himself, that he was not like other men, adulterers, unjust, or this tax collector. He bragged about fasting twice a week and tithing, but notice that there was no request of God, no humility before God, but instead he listed his resume This is because he thought he didn't need God, but somehow God needed him. But that's what self-justification does. It blinds you to your own brokenness, your own sin, your own imperfections. But it also causes you to look with smugness or some sort of contempt and fix your face like you're smelling something to other people. Family, let us be aware of that. Jesus warns his disciples that apart from him, we can do nothing. If not for grace, there go I. We can do nothing. He is the vine and we are the branches. And Jesus says the tax collector standing afar would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but instead beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said one went home justified rather than the other. Jesus wanted him to see the law as good, righteous, as high and holy. It was a standard that was just above him that was intended to reveal three things. It was supposed to, number one, reveal the righteous character and high holy standards of God. Number two, it's supposed to reveal no human can keep the law in his own power perfectly. And number three, the law was a guardian until Christ came so that we could be justified by faith in him. In other words, the moral law served as a tutor, training us to strongly desire a savior who could rescue us, a savior who would give the remedy of mercy and grace. Galatians chapter three, verse 23 and 26 says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. Hallelujah, indeed. This destroys or should destroy any boasting or all pride that we should have. But in verse 29, you can almost hear the smugness and self-righteous pride in his third question. The lawyer says, and who is my neighbor? He was looking for a loophole in order to narrow the scope of who he should show compassion and love to, who would be considered a neighbor. It's like those who play the limbo game. 
Y'all familiar with that? Shout out to my Trinidadians who came up with it. But the goal is to bend your back low as far as you can go without knocking down the pole below, right? The aim is to set the standard high by placing the bar low. Now, if you set the pole high and you lower the standard, just about anyone can do it. Even I can do it, right? It becomes easy and the requirement is easy to meet, right? Well, the common thought was that your neighbor was only a fellow Israelite. And at times we think that too, that my neighbor is only a fellow Christian, one who is like me, who looks like me, thinks like me, moves like me. And sometimes our favorite Jew or favorite Christian, right? That's a low standard and an easy requirement. But God is not common, nor does he call his people to do common things. But even in the Old Testament, the lawyer failed to realize in the very same chapter of 19 in Leviticus about neighbor love that was quoted earlier in our scripture reading. It expands the definition of neighbor. It sets the standard much higher. Says in verse 33 of uh, Leviticus 19, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger, the non-Jew who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. God is like, I know how the surrounding countries treat foreigners and strangers, but you are mine. I am the Lord, your God. For all of us that are in Christ, we are strangers, foreigners, and exiles. How much more, regardless of the surrounding voices, should we show mercy to a stranger, a foreigner, or an exile among us? Because he is the Lord, our God. And this passage calls God's people to consider the stranger and to love them as yourself, because they themselves were strangers in the land of Egypt. But not so with the lawyer. And this is his second dilemma. Even though he knew the law in Israel history, the lawyer had a very narrow, shallow view of neighbor. In fact, it actually exposed the sin of favoritism and racism. It was quite interesting that Luke begins with, and behold, in verse 25. And what he's doing is he wants to draw the reader to the previous passages, specifically in chapter 9, verse 51 to 56. And notice Jesus' heart compared to his disciples' heart toward the outsider. In verse 51 of chapter 9 in Luke, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for them. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus, he turned to them and rebuked them. And they went out on, uh, went out to another village. So did you notice the difference in the responses? <laughs> James and John wanted to call fire from heaven as a rebuke on the Samaritans. But Jesus rebuked them instead. This was the climate during the time. These two groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, had nothing to do with one another. They hated each other. The Samaritans were considered a mixed breed, half Jew, half Gentile. They were outcasts, the other. And strict Jews, in order not to defile themselves, would not even set foot inside of Samaria. And it's similar in many factions that we have today. 
the various tribes and political affiliations, the ethnic or socioeconomic groupings that divide us, even as Christians, in so many unfortunate ways. We don't want to have anything to do with those people. But Jesus' heart was different. He desired to bring the message and mercy to the Samaritans. He made plans, but the scripture said that the Samaritans did not receive him because he was on his way to Jerusalem. So this was both sided, right? And this type of favoritism, racism, prejudice can cause you to miss Jesus like the Samaritans did or to misrepresent Jesus like the disciples did. Don't we see that sadly today? People miss Jesus because many people misrepresent Jesus. And many people misrepresent Jesus because they miss Jesus because they never knew Jesus. No matter what flag they fly or Christian words they say, a tree is known by its fruit. It can be subtle, it can be blatant, but it's in our hearts. And it takes Jesus and his word and his people to help us uncover it. And if we're honest, man, we're really comfortable being around those that are similar to us. Those who move in the same circles, have the same background, have the same experiences. He calls us to broaden who our neighbor is and wants us to ask not who, but how can we be a good neighbor? Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward would you give? Are not even the tax collectors doing that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46? But that's illegitimate. The standard has been lowered to accommodate both our prejudices and our preferences. So the question, the self-righteous or our prejudices, our preconceived options, opinions that are not rooted in experience, do those things blind us to how we should show mercy to our neighbors? There are two ways to respond to the sin of racism, either come clean or cover up. So Jesus illustrates this with the story to help the lawyer come clean. He tells a parable, which means to cast alongside. The purpose is to give an earthly story with a spiritual meaning, a meaning that will cast light and drill home his point. That God's people equipped with God's word ought to be merciful neighbors. And that our scope should be wide and deep, not narrow and shallow. And he uses a good Samaritan of all people to illustrate that. You got to ask yourself, how would he illustrate the scope of neighbor to you? The hood Samaritan, the Republican Samaritan, the Democrat Samaritan. Well, we can see that this story is for all of us. So in verse 30 to 36, he begins the parable. In it, you have a man who doesn't say who he is. He's both nameless and faceless, but we do know where he's going. He's traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 17 mile long. Uh, hike is about 770 feet below sea level. That's important to know because you had all kind of cracks and crevices and caves for people to duck in and do dirt, like rob and steal and jump people. And that's exactly what happens. They stripped this man who was walking there. They beat this man and they left the man half dead. And then we're introduced to two new characters, a priest and a Levite. These two represent the religious leadership. These are the church folk. And as they were on their way, maybe in a hurry, either late for something or trying to get out of that particular neighborhood. Either way, the parable itself doesn't say why. The only common denominators were they both saw him and they both passed by. 
And I'm sure many of you can relate to this, out of sight, out of mind especially those of us who come from urban backgrounds, right? You know right off the break, you're already skeptical, just like the lawyer looking for loopholes to justify why not to stop. You were raised not to go for the okie doke And I'll speak for myself. I was raised not to do that. And at first glance, it's like, man, who knows? The robbers could still be waiting. Someone can stop and help this guy. And then boom, both of us are now in the ditch. Yes, be wise as serpent and innocent as does. Yes, use good common sense, but I come as one confessing, as a fellow brother, asking that the Lord would give me a greater heart of mercy and discernment, that I would see like Jesus, that wounded man should take far more consideration in my heart and my actions. Because it was the wounded man, Jesus, that forsook all comforts and inconveniences to consider me, to consider us. So in the parable, just imagine yourself as the victim, the victim of violence with no hope unless that Samaritan stops and helps, that Republican Samaritan, that Democrat Samaritan, that hustler Samaritan. How would you want that Samaritan to act if that was your situation? Would you not want him to stop, not consider racial or political or social barriers? This is what Jesus is showing him. So we see that the religious folks fail the requirement of love for their neighbor and how the third person now appears on the scene. And it's a surprising twist. It's the climax of the parable. It's a Samaritan, one who lives out the spirit of the law of loving neighbor. It's the Samaritan that's the example of truly loving your neighbor as yourself and showing compassion. It's the Samaritan that Jesus points to and says, this is what that looks like, loving your neighbor. And in verse 34, he bandaged up his wounds with oil and wine. The wine served as an anesthetic during this time, and the oil eased the pain. So this is both love and kindness on display. He put him on his own animal, which indicates the man was in such bad shape to the point that he wasn't even able to walk or even to get on his animal on his own. It's extravagant. It's amazing. It was a Samaritan that set him on his own animal, physically picked him up and then walked besides the man all the way to the end so that he could be taken care of. And Jesus knew all too well about the difficulty of how hard it was to find room at the end. But the Samaritan was determined to show love. Verse 35 says, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper to take care of him. And whatever he spent, he would repay when he returned. Wow. Two denarii would have paid for up to two months of room and board. And not only that, he promises to cover any additional expenses that he may have. See, we don't often think of what would have happened if that Samaritan would not have paid the full price as promised. The cost would have been too much for this man to pay. Remember, he was robbed, beaten, and naked. In fact, the situation could have gone from bad to worse. See, people during that time would literally sell themselves as slaves to their debtors. Matthew chapter 18, verse 25 is a good example of that. But Jesus is showing this incredible answer to the lawyer's question of neighbor love. It was not just material, not just physical. It wasn't just economic, but it also was freedom that he did not know he even needed. But that's what mercy does. That's what love does. That's what Jesus does. He liberated us. He liberated us from sin, from ourselves, and from Satan. 
so that we would be free to serve, free to serve God, other Christians, those we like, those we don't like, those who aren't like us, even those who don't like us. That's any and everybody. And now we come to the fourth and final question in the third and final dilemma here in verse 36 and 37. Verse 36, it says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And in verse 37, the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks, who proves to be the neighbor? And this proving is to be a neighbor. It's reminiscent of James chapter two, verse 18, where James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. This gets to the heart of the fact that we are neighbors regardless of proximity, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, or neighborhood you may find yourself in. It's not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor? See a need, meet the need, and that can take the form of time, talent, or treasure. Now, might others take advantage of us? Sure. But instead of looking for loopholes, let's lean in with love. When Jesus ends with go and do likewise, this is the dilemma that Jesus leads him and the dilemma that we ourselves have to wrestle with. How do I obey these commandments? How do I obey this command in particular? So before we get to the solution, I just want to give a quick sidebar for Christians right? The imperatives and indicatives of of scripture, the imperatives and the indicatives of scripture. The indicative is just recognizing the truth of who you are in Christ. That's what it is. You're a new creature. You're justified. You're adopted. You're united with Christ. You've been rescued from Satan's power. You're redeemed from the penalty of sin, reconciled to God, reserved for heaven, and ready for mission. This is who you are. This is the result of the gospel, right? Indicative. This is who you are. Now, the imperative, these are the commands that are found in Scripture. Jesus said, go do likewise. These are the applications to think, to act, to speak in ways that are not natural to your flesh, right? Many of these commands in the Bible are tied to the gospel in our identity. Like, for instance, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is for Christians. Think of what our covenant talks about. And the covenant, our points in the covenant is right from the Scripture. It calls us to do these things as those who are Christians. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you. Accept one another as Christ has accepted us. Pursue peace with others as God did with us. Be merciful to others as God has been merciful to us. So the commands minus an understanding of who and whose we are equal moralism and work-based righteousness. But knowing our identity and being hearers and not doers of the word equals disobedience and licentiousness. Christian obedience does not flow out of our will to obey, but out of our understanding of the gospel and God's love for us that's unshakable, but also unconditional. Let us examine not just our obedience, but also our motivations for obeying the commands of scriptures. So are you compelled to obey in search of God's acceptance? Or does God's undeserved, unconditional acceptance of you move you to obey him? Like how often do you reflect on God's unconditional love for you? 
See, the only way to love like this is to have a new heart. The only way to love like this is to have the fruit of the Spirit's presence with us. It is only as the love of Christ is poured out within our hearts through the Spirit will we love as we ought. And within the community of the body of Christ, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. So the answer to the four questions and the solution to the three dilemmas are the same. The gospel. We never move past the cross. Only a more mind-blowing understanding of it. In the gospel, Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. We were not just beat up, but we were dead in our sins. But when Jesus came into the rough neighborhood and came down our road, and even though we were enemies, he was moved with mercy and compassion towards us. He saw our condition. In Romans 5.10, it says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Hallelujah. He came to us and saved us, not merely at the risk of his life, but as in the case of the Samaritan, but the cost of his life. And on the cross, he paid a debt that we could never pay ourselves. He set us free from sin, self, and Satan. And Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan to whom the good Samaritan points to, the crucified and risen Savior. So before you can give this kind of neighbor love, you need to receive this kind of neighbor love. Once you receive it through Christ, you can begin to be a neighbor that the Bible calls us to be. And you all heard maybe the golden rule. We are to treat others as we want to be treated. But the platinum diamond encrusted rule is we are to treat others the way God has treated us. Is there a neighbor God will have you love today? Whom will he have you to serve? Not to work for approval from God, but because you are approved by God. And in that way, we're free and we're empowered as those who are saved by grace to go serve our neighbors with mercy, all of our neighbors. And then Jesus ended this with a question, the same question for us. Who is the neighbor to the man in the road? It was the one who shows mercy. He made his point on how to be a neighbor is to see a need, play a part, and meet the need. Not as a means of salvation, but motivated by salvation. So here at Anacostia River Church, we see, um, we want to see this type of mercy to our neighbors lived out, right? So this, we want to see this take place both on the micro level, but also on the macro level of showing mercy, both individual Christians, as well as a church family, to see a need, play a part, and meet the need. Right. And that is expressed in all kinds of ways. And we hope to accomplish that in at least three broad categories that I want to share with you. Neighboring partnerships and through our PSA teams, neighboring partnerships and through our PSA teams. So one way to show mercy is through neighboring. And I'm not sure if you all heard of a book called The Art of Neighboring by Jay Pathak. In his book, he states that Christians in their efforts to visit soup kitchens and places like that have often neglected their literal neighbors that they have next door and across the street. This is so true, right? We miss out on our literal neighbors across the street and next door. Now, I know we just learned that Jesus expanded that definition of neighbor, but if you're looking from somewhere to just to start, somewhere to begin, next door is a good option, especially serving your neighbor during COVID. 
right? We can't get out as often as we would, would like, but man, God has given us opportunity now to love neighbors right next door. Another option is getting together to start a small group to read on the book of neighboring together with those brothers and sisters that live in the very same neighborhood. Imagine the possibilities of thinking, dreaming, and praying for opportunities to show mercy. I mean, that's a great goal for the new year, to form a group like that. Again, the book is called The Art of Neighboring, Building Genuine Relationships Right Outside Your Door. And also as neighbors, we may run into some things that we're not always accustomed to or comfortable with. And we can react sometimes without understanding the full nature and context of the problem. And things don't always work out the way we expect. You all may have even experienced that already, being in the neighborhood in that way. But be encouraged. We've all made mistakes. But God gives grace, grace to the humble. And this is where good partnerships come in. We can link on with folks who have already been in the community for years, showing mercy and loving our neighbors. And we can serve together. So this past year, we just hired a full-time neighbor outreach director. And one of Ashley's main functions is connecting members of the church to neighborhood opportunities. And so she's done the legwork of establishing these relationships, vetting these relationships, and seeing the needs of the community. And some of those relationships are with Cornerstone School. Cornerstone is a K-12 Christian school right here in Southeast D.C., where several members are teachers and there are needs that range from getting students, from greeting students on the first day of school, just encouraging them as they come into the building, to longer term mentorship and coaching opportunities. So sky's the limit. The range is endless there. Friends at Ketchum is another school focus um, where this group meets once a month. And they discuss ways to serve and provide resources for Ketchum Elementary School right on Good Hope Road. And our sister Jana, has, she's just been a blessing and an advocate for folks for for years. So there are opportunities at schools for those who would love to put the gifts to work in that way through volunteering and advocating for education, seeing the need, playing your part in meeting the need. Other ways are through partnerships with local organizations like DC 127. So organization that supports foster and adoptive families, Children of Mind Youth Center, Martha's Table, Young Life, DC Dream Center, all of these are located right here in Southeast DC who are already been showing mercy to our neighbors. So unfortunately, some of these ideas of showing mercy have sometimes misdiagnosed the problem and they have hurt the very people that we have hoped to help, right? Um, so we've organized our mercy ministries to our neighbors in what we call PSA teams. We form pray, study, and act teams based on Jeremiah 29, a series we did last year called Bless the Block, where the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and it was given to the exiles in Babylon. They were called to prepare for the long haul. And that's what we want, to prepare for the long haul. So we pray, study before we act. So some of those needs we see and hope to play a part in Anacostia are home ownership and production, food security and production, family formation and well-being, shalom for the city and promoters of truth. So we would love to see both on the micro and on the macro level showing mercy to our neighbors, both as Christians, neighboring on the block, partnerships in the community through pray and study act teams. Not as the savior of Southeast, but pointing them to the Savior as we serve our neighbors and proclaim the gospel. May God be gracious to us as 
we all have questions regarding, you know, how do we, how do we see um, things that we see and the things that we experience? So may we approach God with the right motives, a better understanding of his word and the gospel and how to neighbor well. So let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask now, God, that we would not just be those who hear the word, Lord, but those that obey. Give us ears of faith. We thank you, Lord, that we've received mercy from you, mercy that was undeserved, and yet you gave. God, by your spirit, help us to follow that example, not as one who would boast before you. The word tells us, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things you delight me. Lord, may our works of love and mercy and justice and righteousness be your delight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.